Well, good morning. It's nice and early. This is the last time I'm preaching. So relax, we might be here a while. Uh, yesterday was a, a special day uh, for me uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, it was my 35th wedding anniversary to my first wife and, and still my best friend. It's beautiful, isn't she? about 60 pounds ago. <laughs> Second, kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum, one year ago yesterday also, my father passed away. I, I told you he was honoring. Not only did he wait till we were out of the country in Beirut, uh, uh, but he also died on, on my wedding anniversary. Uh, but as I reflected on my father this week, I recalled several things that he passed on to me, several ways in which he was an example uh, to me. Uh, growing up a military dependent, we, we moved rather frequently, so I intentionally, willfully adopted North Carolina as my home state, even though I was not born here. Uh, but you see, Dad was right down the street. He was reared in Gastonia. Uh, since Dad, again, was in the Air Force from the time I was young, I was going uh, to go into the Air Force. In, in fact, I attended the academy, but uh, my heavenly father had other uh, plans. D Dad played baseball growing up. So I played baseball growing up. Actually, I sat the bench for four years because my dad wanted me to. I wanted to be like him. I am a faithful Carolina fan. No, people often ask me, did you go to school there? No, but you see, Dad was a rabid Tar Heel fan. In fact, I can remember growing up that one of his week's vacation was always the week of the ACC tournament so that he could watch all the games. Dad was also a committed believer, a Christian, and he passed his faith on to me. Yes, there had to be a time when I decided that his faith would be my faith. I, I, I want you to understand I was not a Christian automatically because he was. The same is true for you. You have the responsibility to respond to the call of the gospel as well. But, but for me, Dad was an example of a follower of, of Jesus. Here's my point. Whether you are a father or a mother here today, a gr grandfather, grandmother, a roommate or a friend, a brother or sister, a co-worker, a neighbor, a boss, an employee, a teacher or a student, you are an example to someone, probably more than one person. Someone is following your example, either good or bad. You're an example, so I guess the question for you this morning is, is this, what kind of example are you? When, you? when you think about it, think about your associations, who, who is following you and where are you leading them? Paul is going to give us uh, both kinds of examples today, both good and bad in our continuing study of 2 Timothy. He actually started with himself. You see, he wrote this letter to his son in the faith, Timothy, as Paul was getting ready to die. It was his swan song, his valedictory address, his final moving words to his son. And so he 
In this letter, he sets an example for Timothy and, frankly, others after him uh, to follow for all of those who would name the name of Christ. As Paul's final letter, he calls Timothy to follow his example, actually in a number of different ways. Back in chapter, uh, excuse me, back in verse 6 of chapter 1, he, he told Timothy to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. I, I laid my hands on you, Timothy. I have a gift and and I lay my hands on you, and you, you've got a gift. It was likely at, at Timothy's ordination we saw when the presbytery, that is the body of elders of uh, the, that particular church, laid their hands on Timothy, setting him aside for the gospel ministry. Remember, remember that, Timothy? Remember your gift came through the laying on of my hands. And remember, Timothy, God has not given us a, a, a spirit of timidity, not given us a spirit of timidity. I don't have it, so you don't either. Rather, he's given us the Holy Spirit of power and love and, and discipline. So, so, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. I'm not. Remember, he told the Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And then not only that, don't be ashamed of me, Timothy. Don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. In, in fact, I have... I have set an example for you to follow, and here it is. I want you to join with me in suffering for the gospel. This call to be believers, this call to follow Christ is a call to, to suffering. He then went on to share one of the most beautiful descriptions of our glorious salvation. God saved us. With a holy calling, he said, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, for the beginning of time. Now it's been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who, he, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And in fact, of that very, very good news, I was appointed a, a preacher, a herald, an apostle, and a teacher. I've done that. For this reason, I, I suffer these things. And he says it again, but of this gospel, I am not ashamed. And, and now, I, I'm passing this on to you. Timothy, do, do not be ashamed. Instead, instead of being ashamed, I need you to retain the gospel. I need you to guard the gospel. I need you to pass it on to other people. We'll see in chapter 2 next week. In fact, here are some other examples, a, a couple of bad examples of faithful men and a, and a good example of a, faith, uh, of a faithful man, one who with me was not ashamed. So read, read the text, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13 to the end of the chapter says this, Timothy, this is an imperative, I, I'm commanding you, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. You are aware of the fact of all who are in Asia, uh, that, that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes, those bad examples. But the Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, the good example, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And, and you know very well what services he rendered it at Ephesus. Paul is writing to say, Timothy, my, 
My time's done. I have I fought the good fight. I finished the, the course. I've, I have kept the faith. Now, now it's your time. It's your, your, your turn to step up. I am passing the baton on to you. So, so remember your gifting. Don't be ashamed. In fact, I want you to join with me in suffering. Retain the sound words of the gospel. Guard the treasure of the gospel. I have tried to be a good example to you. Here's some, here's some others for you to consider. Don't be like these two deserters. Instead, be like Onesiphorus. This forms the outline of our uh, thoughts today. We're going to see retain the standard, guard the treasure. Don't be like the bad examples. Instead, follow the good one. So starting with re- retain or, or literally hold on to the standard of, of sound words. He's used this idea of sound or, or healthy words in, in both of these letters uh, to Timothy to refer to the gospel. You see, Timothy had had an ample opportunity to hear what Paul had taught. He had accompanied him, remember, on two missionary journeys. He had, he'd been discipled by Paul, so Paul could actually say to him, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me. Yeah, I, I gave them to you. Remember what I've taught you. And, and, and then remember that Paul got this very message from Jesus himself. Remember what he said to the Galatians. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Timothy, I, I have passed on to you the very words that I got from Jesus himself. So you need to retain it. You need to hold it. You need to grab hold and, and keep it. We're talking about the gospel. You remember Paul gave us a definition of the gospel back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That Christ died for our sins according to the scripture and that he was buried. And and being buried was proof that he had in fact died and that he was raised again the third day according to the scripture. And as proof of that, he was seen by hundreds of witnesses. He says, that's the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. People are going to want to mess with that. Hold on to that. This past weekend, Tan and I took some time away uh, to go to Charleston. We were here last week. Was given the opportunity to uh, to say I, I listened to I listened to Michael's sermon. Boy, it's coming right along. Did a great job, and I'm very thankful for uh, thankful for that. When we got to Charleston, we found out we didn't know this. There was an arts festival going on, so we bought tickets to see a group of of young people, actually very young, ages 10 to 18. Uh, playing Celtic music on their violins. It was, they, I mean, they traveled internationally. It was incredible, fantastic. But this, this concert, you see, was held, you know, it was held at a church, the, the Circular Congregational Church, founded in 1681. I, you know that I kind of like history, and boy, that was just a, this is a beautiful building. See why it's called the Circular Church? Um, it's, it's now become part of the United Church of Christ. So since the since the concert was going to be in this particular building, I thought, well, I, I think I'll check this church out. I actually should have waited till after the concert. I, I went to their website and saw that they had podcasts just like us. So I decided to listen to their Easter Sunday sermon. I mean, how in the world can you mess up Easter? 
In that sermon on Resurrection Sunday, the pastor, he talked about this vision that Mary Magdalene had of Jesus being raised from the dead. It's just a vision. You see, it, it really doesn't matter whether it was real or not. What matters is that his teachings still guide us today. And I was, I was about to blow up the place that we were staying in. I thought, dude, have you ever read 1 Corinthians 15? If Christ is not raised, we are still in our sins. We are without hope. We are of all people to be most pitied. He is not retaining the standard of, of sound words. Disaster. I didn't see him when I went to the concert. It's probably a good thing. Word standard or pattern of sound words speaks of, a, of an outline. It was used to speak of a sketch that an architect uh, might draw before getting to the detailed plans uh, of, of, his, uh, of, uh, of the building. What Paul is saying is this. I have, I've given you the blueprint I've given you the outline, I've given you a pattern, I've given you the standard, which must be, listen to this, I've given you the pattern, the standard, which must be superimposed on everything that you say and on everything that you do. We are de to be people of the, of the gospel. I want you to notice two very important things about this. I want you to notice, very, first of all, very critically important, incredibly important, the message is restricted. The things that Timothy had heard were to form the pattern of his teaching. He could not change the message. He had a standard which must be preserved at all costs. And those things that he heard that God wants us then to hear and use as our pattern, we have in the apostolic teaching in the Word of God. You see, the Word contains the sound words that must be central to our message. It is the foundation of the truth upon which we build. Let me be very, very clear. If Christ has not died, if Christ has not risen from the dead, we are wasting our time. Not interested in his teaching. If it's just a sham, if it's just a fraud. It matters. The message is restricted. Secondly, while the message is restricted, there is, there is a certain freedom in the method how do I get that? Notice he says, that which you have heard from me, not how you have heard it from me. Okay, I think, I think from this there are two dangers that we must avoid. First, we must never allow the messenger or the method to overshadow the message. The message must remain paramount. It's never about the messenger. It is always about the message. It doesn't matter the name of the church. It doesn't matter the name of the ministry. It must be built on the foundation of sound teaching of the gospel. We have many today who would make the messenger or the method central. What do I mean by that? Well, by means of a great oratory or by exciting and ingenuitive programs, by professional marketing or by cleverly devised church growth strategies. You know, what we do is more important than what we say. Let me give you another example. Someone recently sent me a picture of a coloring page 
that a specific church gives to their children to draw on, to color during the sermon. Sorry, kids, you just got the connection cards. This coloring page that is given to the kids has at the top of the page, it has the word unity. And right underneath it, Hebrews 13, 17. Now, you need to understand what Hebrews 13, 17 says. It says, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. Now, that's a verse in the Bible. Yep, that's good. That's, that's what I want my kids to know. The, the picture to, to color, and it's, a, it's just a drawing is, is a drawing of this pastor. There can be no mistake about it. It looks just like him. Uh, this pastor, and he's at the front, and he's preaching. And at the bottom of the page, right there, all the people are watching. The bottom of the page says, this church, gives the name of the church, I will not name it, is built on the vision that God gave pastor so-and-so, names the pastor, names him. And we will protect our unity in supporting his Vision. Are you kidding me? So that's what these kids get. We will guard the vision of our pastor. Whatever happened to retaining the sound words of the gospel? I had too much time off the last two weeks. Sorry. Pastors today run the danger of spending more time in leadership journals, church growth manuals, in front of the mirror, Wall Street Journal, than they do the Word of God. And the problem then is the gospel becomes weakened, it becomes polluted, or altogether ignored. It is never, ever about the messenger. The message is central, and it is there that the priority of our energies must be directed. The second danger we must avoid is in believing that the method that we happen to use is the only inspired method, and that any other method is wrong. <laughs> We're really good at this, you see. We must remember that the New Testament does not necessarily give a blueprint on how ministry is to look, only how only what is to be communicated. There seems to be a great degree of freedom in method. What, what am I talking about? I'm talking about style. I'm not saying that you cannot have your preference in style. You know, contemporary or traditional or liturgical or in shorts or suit. I don't care. Just don't make your preference a moral issue. Paul, you see, is not instructing Timothy to teach just like him in style. He was telling him what to preach. Preach the gospel and guard it. I remember when I graduated from Bible college where all the graduates were making our way in the robe and, and we're making our way to the field house where thousands would gather. And outside the building was this guy on the sidewalk with this enormous sign, and he's preaching to us, and the sign says something about, we need to be street preachers, because that's the way Paul did it, that's the way we should do it. You got to be street preachers. It's a method. And so it caused me to ask the question, is it the most effective means of preaching today? 
some years later, uh, I was bivocational working at a bank and, and, and at a church. Uh, in my bank life, we occasionally went uh, to downtown Denver. That's Denver, Colorado. Denver, North Carolina doesn't have a downtown. <laughs> Um, we went to downtown uh, Denver, Colorado, to the main bank uh, for, for meetings. During lunch, the, the office buildings uh, would empty out into the 16th Street Mall, which is just a pedestrian walkway that was lined with dozens and dozens of, of restaurants. And, and, and people would come flow out by the thousands to enjoy the weather. They'd be in their suits and ties and dresses, whatever. And as we were walking, making our way to our restaurant, there was this guy in blue jeans and a T-shirt holding a Bible. And he was preaching rather loudly, and I was kind of interested. And so I, I, I listened as, um, as we got closer. And while the conversation's going on around me, I'm kind of listening to this guy. And guess what? He got it right. I mean, he was spot on. Everything that he was saying, I could have, man, if I was in charge, I'd yelled, amen. Here's the thing. I looked around, and there was no one paying attention to him. Even the guys I was walking with, they just raised the volume of their conversation so that as we walked around him, the message was right. The method probably needed some work. The point is, while the message is restricted and must be jealously held on to, there is freedom in the method. But, but please notice, even as I say that, that the, our method of ministry is to be governed by faith and love in Christ Jesus. It is the it is faith in Christ that we're talking about. We're talking about the gospel and, and, and the love that this gospel produces that is to govern our message. And got me thinking about that guy. And you know what he was saying was right, but there wasn't a lot of love there. We must share the truths of the unchanging gospel, faith in Christ Jesus, but we must do so in love. And how many times have people turned away from the message because of the lack of love by the messenger? We Christians ought to be the most loving people on the planet. Timothy was to keep the standard of sound words he had received from Paul in faith and love. And secondly, and the next three will go more quickly, Timothy, guard the treasure, guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you, verse 14. Guard is the same word that we looked at in verse 12, where we saw that Paul was convinced that, that God was able to guard what, what Paul had entrusted to him, or it could be translated, either translation, remember a couple weeks ago, is viable and in fact appropriate, that, that, that God would guard what he has entrusted to Paul. It, uh, either way, either one is good. God is able to guard the faith that I've entrusted to him, or God is able to, to guard the gospel that he has entrusted to me. In the end, it doesn't really matter. It's the gospel that God promises to guard either my faith in the gospel truth or the gospel that he has entrusted to me to share. God's going to guard it. He's faithful. Our salvation is secure and we will persevere to the end. The, the point is, Timothy, we, uh, we, and we, frankly, are admonished to guard what he has entrusted to us. It is the very treasure of the gospel. The word guard means to protect against loss or destruction or even change. This is an awesome responsibility that Paul was leaving with Timothy. Some see Paul figuratively handing his baton, baton specifically to Timothy, who in turn is to hand it to others, who handed it to others, who eventually handed it to us. We must realize the awesome responsibility 
we have to guard the treasure of the gospel. Listen, if it was true back then, if it was true for places like Corinth and Ephesus and the churches of Galatia, where false teachers had come in and spread their garbage, perverted the gospel, how much truer is that for us today? Paul said in Galatians chapter 1, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different, what, gospel? Which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. This is what Paul is ultimately concerned about. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach you a gospel contrary uh, to, to, what you, uh, to what we have preached to you, he is to be a curse. That wasn't enough for him. He just let me had to repeat himself. So I say again, now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. That means eternally damned. We are talking about the gospel, and he is serious about us guarding it. Will you think about this with me just for a moment? Many cults have sprung from false teachers who were reared in orthodox circles, meaning they did not guard the, the treasure. Charles Taze Russell grew up in, a, in Pennsylvania in a Presbyterian home. I like Presbyterians. He later became a Congregationalist. Both of those are orthodox denominations, but he later founded the Jehovah's Witnesses, who denied the deity of Jesus Christ. Judge Rutherford, who did much to advance um, the Jehovah's Witnesses, grew up in a Baptist home in Missouri. I like Baptists. I went to a Baptist college in Missouri. Mary Baker Eddy was reared in a strict Congregationalist family. She went on to found the Christian scientists, who are neither Christian nor scientists. Joseph Smith, founder of the Mormon Church, was raised a Presbyterian. What's wrong with those Presbyterians? The point is, we have been handed a treasure. Guard it. I thought about saying to you at this point, if one of you coming, being raised in this church, leave from here and go start a cult, I'm going to hunt you down. And I decided I wouldn't say it. <laughs> guard it. The good news is we don't have to do it alone. Paul tells Timothy to guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit. This is incredible. Who dwells in us to ensure its faithful transmission. God has given us his very Holy Spirit. The God of the universe actually lives within us. He is here to help us and guard, help us guard against error, whether from within or without. dwells in us. Brings us to our third point. There are some bad examples that Paul uses to tell Timothy to avoid, namely Amphigelus and Hermogenes. Now, I know, I, you know, I, I know we don't like naming names, um, but, and I, I, I just talked about this church where you have the coloring page, and I didn't say the church, I didn't say name, I'm doing a little bit better, but Paul needs a little work because he names Phygelus and Hermogenes. These two are named nowhere else in the New Testament. Name, this is it. They get one verse, man. First Timothy, or 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. That's it. That's what they got. 
and their eternal epitaph is that of having turned away from Paul. That's what they got. Who were these two? Somehow they were well-known enough and close enough to Paul and Timothy to have been named. Perhaps they were, I think, leaders in the church and their desertion was shocking. Please notice Paul actually says that all those in Asia turned away from me. He's obviously using hyperbole here since in the province of Asia, which is western Turkey, included Ephesus, where (laughs) Timothy is and where Onesiphorus is from. They'd not deserted, but so many, likely in leadership, had turned away that, that Paul felt terribly alone. We get, a, we get a glimpse into this man's heart as he's facing execution, and, and people fled. We have to ask, were these two truly believers who deserted Paul in the face of imminent persecution, or was theirs a false commitment like those in the parable of the sower who fell away in the midst of persecution. Commentators are equally divided. Some point out the word turned away is used elsewhere of deserting the gospel. Others say there's no reason to think that they deserted Christ. They were just scared. They were fearful of pending persecution. Either way, they in some way were, get this, in some way they were ashamed. either of the gospel or of the gospel messenger. The word turned away means to refute, or excuse me, to refuse to have anything to do with, to disown. It means to cast off. Persecutions had begun. Paul had been arrested. Rather than coming to his aid, they forsook him and they fled. In fact, in chapter 4, he says, at my first defense, no one stood with me. When Paul needed them, they They took off. While we don't know who they were, apparently Timothy did, and Paul seems to be making a point by mentioning them. Yeah, can you believe it? Even Pygelus and Hermogenes, two you would never expect, had deserted. I think there's a lesson there for us, folks. I I, I think as we face increasingly hostile culture that there are going to be those that we would never think would leave. Ne- they, they, you're kidding me, John? Really? They we too will have a choice to be ashamed, to flee, or to stand firm in the name of and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul, fortunately, does not leave us with these negative examples. He closes the chapter by encouraging Timothy with a positive example of Onesiphorus, verses 16 to 18. Very, very quickly, I'm just going to breeze through this. This, you see, is one who was not ashamed. He did not run from persecution. In fact, there's a sense I would suggest that he actually ran to persecution. He ran to the capital city where Paul was. Oh, that I would be like that. We know a little more about Onesiphorus from this text. He's only mentioned here in these verses and in one other place in chapter 4. And actually in chapter 4, it's his household. And like the two negative examples, Onesiphorus left an (laughs) epitaph recorded for all eternity that he was faithful. 
He was faithful to the gospel, and he was faithful to the gospel messenger. What do we know about him from this text? We, we know he's from Ephesus. Paul states that he had helped Paul, uh, that he'd helped Paul there. And, and, and later in chapter 4, again, verse 19, Timothy is told to greet his household. Uh, second, it's possible, and you need to pay attention here just, just, just real quickly. It's possible that Onesiphorus may have been dead at this point, which is actually kind of important. Again, commentaries are, are equally divided, but the wording leaves open the possibility that he had somehow died. You see, his household, not he, is greeted. Paul prays that, um, he, uh, that his household, not he, would be granted mercy presently, uh, or, he, or he wishes that the household would be uh, granted mercy presently, uh, but that Onesiphorus himself would find mercy in the day of Christ's return. Finally, in chapter 4, when he mentioned those who have been with him, who have gone to different places, and he mentions everybody, he does not mention Onesiphorus. Is it possible that in his unashamed association with Paul, shows up in the capital city where persecution is at its ravage heights, that it cost him his life? It's possible. The text doesn't actually say and let me tell you why it is important. Because it is possible that he had died at this point. Some have used these verses as a proof text to speak of praying for, for the dead, prayer for the dead. Onesiphorus was dead. Paul prayed that he would receive mercy at the appearing of Christ. So, too, we can pray for the dead. Why this verse has been used, these verses have been used to support the doctrine of purgatory. They're in purgatory. We need to pray them out. To all of that, I would say this. Building an entire doctrine on the ambiguity of this passage is at least dangerous. First, again, we do not know if he was dead. And second, Paul here, if you look at the wording, he does not actually pray for him. It's rather just a wish that he might find mercy at the coming of Christ. So, no praying for the dead, bad news, no purgatory. A couple of other things we learn about him in this text before we close. As Paul was encouraging Timothy to not be ashamed of Paul's imprisonment, he cites Onesiphorus as one who was not ashamed. In fact, we see that he searched diligently until he found Paul. This is, this is the clue that we, that, that we understand. This is different from that first imprisonment that he was in his own rented quarters and people came and, and, and went as they pleased. But here we see that he had, to, he had to search for him diligently until he found him. And then in a play on words, Paul says, and may he now find mercy. Having found Paul, he served him in prison, far from being ashamed of Paul's chains. And it's likely referring to the literal chain. He refreshed Paul. And again, it could have cost him his life. Could refer to physical care. Prisoners then were dependent on friends and family to take care of them with food and things like that. It could also refer to spiritual care and comfort that Paul actually, the great apostle Paul, actually needed at this point. Everyone had deserted, but Paul was not alone. Finally, Paul reminds Timothy of how Onesiphorus had served faithfully in Ephesus. We don't know how, but in some way he served Paul. He serves as a strong, glorious example to Timothy and to us. Which brings us back to our introduction and just a couple of questions as we close. The call to us 
is to not be ashamed of Christ and his gospel. And as followers of Christ, we see here, depending on how we handle the gospel, we are examples to somebody, likely somebody's, likely more than one. The question that I have for you is, are you a phygelist? Are you an Hermogenes? Or are you an Onesiphorus? You see, here's the truth. People are following you. They are. Somebody's following you. Where are you leading them? Father, I pray today that you would impress upon us the importance of the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. May we retain it. May we hold on to it with everything in us. May we guard it against attack. It's a treasure. May we love it with everything in us. In Christ's name.